Shalom, brothers and sisters. I'm Brother Sid. I have Brother Christopher assisting me today. We are the Commandment Keepers Church. We have a detailed lesson prepared for our brothers and sisters internationally. The title of today's lesson will be, This is Eternal Life, Acquaintance with God. Brothers and sisters, today we will go throughout the manuscript from Genesis to Revelations, um, learn, looking to learn about the Most High God. One thing that we, one thing that we've missed, brothers and sisters, is who God is. We've been taught that God is somebody else. Um, we've been taught we are somebody else. Many of our people have found the truth of their national origin, their ethnicity, their identity, but are still learning the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. This is Jews and Gentiles. This is Israelites and Gentiles alike, brothers and sisters. So we're going to learn a lot about the Most High. We're going to scour the scriptures to see what it yields, brothers and sisters. We're going to John. We're going to start in the gospel. We're going to start with Christ. John, the 17th chapter, the first through the second, excuse me, the first through the third verse. Please follow us there. John 17, verse 1. What's that say, brother? These words spake Christ, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, What did he say? Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Continue, brother. And this is life eternal. What did he say, brother? And this is life eternal. What is life eternal? That they might know thee, the only true God in Christ, whom thou hast sent. Brothers and sisters, this statement by Christ begins in a very profound manner. And this is eternal life. Did you see that, brothers and sisters? To complete such a statement requires comprehensive truth. Everlasting life is a present tense possession. It's not something that begins when you get to heaven. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 3. John 17 and 3. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Christ, whom thou hast sent. See? So nowhere else in the scripture is the focus of gaining knowledge of the Most High more pronounced than in the Apostle John's writings. Brothers and sisters, this is key because if you ask a believer, what is eternal life? Ask, ask these Christians, brothers and sisters, and listen to the rhetoric. Ask the Israelites. Ask the people who know themselves as Israelites and see what they say. See, so we have to go back to basics, brothers and sisters. And what we want to do is we want to start studying Christ more. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to study the gospel, study Christ. A lot of times we want to go to the Apographer. We want to go to the Torah, the Tanakh. Yeah, that's good. That's fine. Right? We want to go to Revelations, but the most important books are the four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it was the three years of Christ's life that was chronologized. There's so much, there's a wealth of information that you find there, and you cannot grow until you can fully understand or comprehend, ascertain the gospel. Can you read that one more time, brother? John 17 and 1. These words fake Christ. And lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. 
as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life. What is it? That they might know thee, the only true God. What is it, brother? That they might know thee, the only true God, in, in Christ, whom now, thou hast sent. Now look at this, brothers and sisters. Because according to Christ, simply knowing about the Most High and acknowledging his existence does not constitute knowing him. And we're going to learn that today. Not only learning the Most High, but learning Christ. That is eternal life according to the Messiah. So irregardless of what your Christian pastor says or anyone else, brothers and sisters, according to Christ, eternal life is based on acquaintance with the Most High and the Messiah. You must learn. We will do that today. Let's go to Proverbs, brother. We're going to learn about the Most High. We're going to learn about the, the Father. We're going to learn about the Son. We're going to learn about the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Proverbs, the 8th chapter, the first verse. Let's get some context here, Brother Christopher. Proverbs 8, verse 1. What's that saying, Brother? Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice. Brothers and sisters, Proverbs, the 8th chapter, is a personification of wisdom. Who is wisdom? The Holy Spirit. You see this? Can you read that again, brother? Verse 1. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice. Jump to verse 34 and 35, please, brother. Follow us, brothers and sisters. We're at Proverbs 8 and 34. Proverbs 8, verse 34. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates. Waiting at the post of my doors. Brothers and sisters, wisdom is here represented as in her temple. Read that one more time, please, brother. There's something I need them to, to catch. Verse 34. Blessed is the man that heareth me. That does what? That heareth me. Hearing signifies a submissive disposition, brothers and sisters. Watching daily at my gates. Doing what, brother? Watching daily at my gate. So our job is to be watching daily for those teachable moments from the Most High. So here it is. <laughs> Look at that, brothers and sisters. The hearing and watching, okay? So your senses, your senses have to be sharpened. My senses, our senses must be sharpened. Not only do we need to listen or hear, but we need to watch. Read that one more time, please, brother. Proverbs 8 and 34. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my door. That means looking for opportunities to learn from the Most High. Verse 35. For whoso findeth me, findeth life. Read that again, brother. For whoso findeth me, findeth life. Finds me, finds life implies that we need to search for. Remember, what did Christ say? <laughs> Christ said, this is eternal life. That you know the Most High and the Messiah. And now the Holy Spirit is saying what? Could you read that again, brother? Verse 35. For whoso findeth me, findeth life. Brothers and sisters, to find something you have to search, okay? And shall obtain favor of the Lord. See, so wisdom must be sought diligently. It does not rub off on the slothful. It is not absorbed by the lazy, brothers and sisters. So now, just within the first two texts, we're learning about what life is, what the Most High considers eternal life. 
That's knowledge of the Godhead. When we say Godhead, the Father, of course, the Head, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. If you don't know the attributes, if you don't know them, if you don't learn of them, it's impossible for you to find eternal life. You can follow all the laws you want. <laughs> you follow all of Leviticus. Don't eat pork and all that. But if you don't know the Most High, if you don't know the Holy Spirit, if you don't know Christ, you will not be going where you're thinking at the end of this, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Job, brother, 22. Follow us there, brothers and sisters. We're going to Job 22 and 21. We're going to read 21 through 28. Job 22, verse 21. Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Brothers and sisters, we need a healthy, sober perspective of who God is. Can you read that again, brother? What was the benefit of acquaintance? Verse 21. Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Acquaint yourself with him. Find peace, and good shall come unto thee. Now he's going to... He's going to list out that good, brothers and sisters, that shall come unto thee with your acquaintance. Verse 22, receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up, thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Then shalt thou lay up gold as dust. In the gold of fear as the stones of the brooks. Yeah, the Almighty shall be thy defense. So here it is. He said, if you get acquainted with me, you'll receive gold like dust. Right? He will be your defense. Right? Continue, brother. Yeah, the Almighty shall be thy defense. And thou shalt have plenty of silver. Now, is he saying that he's going to give you gold and silver, brothers and sisters? No. What is he saying? He's saying you'll always be provided for. You'll never need. You'll never want. Continue, brother. Verse 26. For then shalt thou have thy delight in the Almighty, and shalt lift up thy face unto God. Thou shalt make thy prayer unto him, and he shall hear thee, and thou shalt pay thy vows. So we're reading the benefit of those who have taken him as their interest, brothers and sisters. What's 28 saying, brother? Verse 28. Thou shalt also decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee. And the light shall shine upon thy ways. This text emphasizes the blessedness of acquaintance with the Most High, brothers and sisters. Gee, so there's a benefit to what we're doing today. Okay, according to Christ, knowledge of the Most High, knowledge of the Messiah, of Christ, is eternal life. The Holy Spirit said, if you find me, you find favor. So we're going to deal with those three today, brothers and sisters. Because we, I mean, we, we really don't know the Most High. We really don't know His character. We really don't know the character of Christ. We really don't know the character of the Holy Spirit. We know what Christians taught us, but we know that's not right. Christians are still searching for the day to go to church. Christians are still searching for the holy days to celebrate. Christians are still searching for the right foods to eat. So it's obvious they don't know the, you know, they don't know the Godhead. They don't know the three, but you will today. Brothers and sisters, we're going to scour the scriptures. Let's start at Exodus, brother. Let's go to the beginning. 
Exodus, the 24th chapter. We're going to read the 15th and the 16th verse. Exodus 24, verse 15. What's that say, brother? And Moses went up into the mount, and the cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. What did? And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Out of the what, brother? Out of the midst of the cloud. According to the text, clouds play a significant role in the revelation and theophany at Sinai, brothers and sisters. Okay? The location where we received the law, Mount Sinai. There's something that Moses is trying to convey. Read 15 and 16 one more time, brother, so our brothers and sisters can get this. Exodus 24, verse 15. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. What covered the mount? A cloud covered the mount. A cloud, brothers and sisters. Verse 16. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So today we will touch on some of the symbolic and redemptive history, the, the significance of clouds. Brothers and sisters, today we will examine the spiritual significance hidden in the clouds. Because here it's showing us that the Most High's presence here is being identified with a cloud. You'll find that all throughout the literature, brothers and sisters. Let us go. Let us show. Let's go to Exodus 33, brother. Same book, just a few chapters away. Uh, we're going to go to Exodus 33, verse 9 and 10. What's that say, brother? Exodus 33, verse 9. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended. The what, brother? The cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy plip <clears throat> and all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. Brothers and sisters, examine this closely because the scriptures everywhere utilize the imagery of clouds to signal the immediate presence of the most high. This is one of the biblical theological themes that has not been given due consideration. Let's read verse nine one more time, brother. Exodus 33, verse 9. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. Continue. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped, every man in his tent door. See? So clouds serve as the best picture in creation of the imminent presence of the transcendent God. Now, especially Hebrews. Hebrews need to understand this, okay? Because you're learning about your God, the God that delivered you. There's symbolism all throughout the text, brothers and sisters. And sometimes we just read past this. If you if you skim through the Bible carelessly, you will miss the beauty. You'll miss it. Now, this is for Jews and Gentiles, but especially Israel. Especially Israel. Why? Because it's your book. This is your book, so you should you should understand how to read it. We're going to help today, brothers and sisters. We're, we're learning something that the Most High, all throughout the manuscript, a cloudy pillar or a cloud does what? It points to his presence, brothers and sisters. 
Let us show you. Let's go to Second Chronicles, brother, 5 and 13. Why? Because knowledge of the Most High, knowledge of the Messiah, knowledge of the Holy Spirit is eternal life, according to the Bible. Let us show you. Let's go to Second Chronicles, the 5th chapter, the 13th and 14th verse. What's that say, brother? Second Chronicles 5, verse 13. It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, Saying what, brother? For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud. What was it filled with? The house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, here we see the approachability of the Most High when we operate monolithically. What do we mean? Read that one more time, 13, brother, because if we examine the text closely, we see the symbolism of the cloud as a representation of the presence of the Most High. Verse 13, it came even to pass. As the trumpeters and singers were as one. They were as what, brother? Were as one. No, they were as two. Were as one. No, they were divided. Were as one. To do what? To make one sound to, to be heard. To do what? To make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. To make one sound, right? Continue. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good. For his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. The presence of the Most High was manifested in a luminous cloud, according to Chronicles, brothers and sisters. Can you read verse 14? Second Chronicles 5 and 14. So that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. By reason of what, brother? By reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. The glory of the Most High, which is identified with the cloud. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? So according to the author, the radiant presence of the Most High made normal services unachievable. It said that the priests, they couldn't even minister because the presence of the Most High was in the room, brothers and sisters. And when the presence of the Most High is in the room, you're quiet. You can't even do anything because you're being overtaken, brothers and sisters. So what was this? This was praise and worship here. It said the trumpeteers, the singers, the cymbals, the instruments, the worship. Nobody can do this like the Jews. <laughs> nobody. If you've ever been to a black church, even the Christian churches, nobody can do praise and worship like us, brothers and sisters. David showed that David was a Jew, brothers and sisters. He played the lyre. He played all the harp. He played all these instruments. So Jews and Gentiles even understand that. Gentiles know the gospel music, that flavor. But really, why do we go here? Not to point to the worship, not to point to the praise, to point to the cloud. Watch this, brothers and sisters, please. Let's go to Mark 9. Let's go to the gospel now, brother. We're going to go to Mark, the ninth chapter, the second through the seventh verse. Listen to this closely, brothers and sisters. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 9, verse 2. And after six days, Christ taketh with him Peter and James and John. Who did he take? Peter, James, and John. 
and leadeth them up into a high mountain <clears throat> apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. According to the text, Christ only took three of his apostles with him for the transfiguration, brothers and sisters. And that's critical. Don't miss that point because it's important to realize that everybody in your circle can't go where God is taking you. Brothers and sisters, we have to know when a person's role in your movie has concluded. Now, Christ had 12. He only took three. So he's showing you the inner circle. This is the inner circle. The circle is the 12. There's an inner circle that Christ is showing you here. Everyone can't go. Brothers and sisters. So he's going to start pruning people away. Friends and all that, brothers and sisters. He's going to start pruning people away because they can't go where he's taking you. Read that one more time, brother, please. Mark 9 and 2. And after six days, Christ taking with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller on earth can wipe them. Christ underwent a dramatic change in appearance in order that the disciples could behold him in his glory. Brothers and sisters, continue. Verse four. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Christ. And Peter answered and said to Christ, Master, it is good for us to be here. Read four one more time, brother, please. Mark nine and four. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Christ. So here we're seeing a couple of things. In the third verse, it tells us that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. But in the fourth verse, it says what, brother? Verse four. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses. Now, Elias is the New Testament or Greek rendering for Elijah, brothers and sisters, with Moses. And they were talking with Christ. So symbolically, brothers and sisters, the appearance of Moses and Elijah represented the law and the prophets. The law came through Moses. Elijah was one of the most famous or most revered of the prophets. Remember, he was taken up, brothers and sisters. He didn't die. He actually was, you know, he was translated. Remember, Elijah and Elisha. So it was this was symbolic here, brothers and sisters. They, they were seeing all three. Peter is, this is, you know, Peter's seeing, well, Peter, all of this, the, the, the three that were there, brothers and sisters, they were seeing Elijah and Moses speaking with the Messiah. And what did Peter say, brother? Verse five. And Peter answered and said to Christ, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for three, excuse me, one for thee. And one for Moses and one for Elias. So Peter is saying, is it good for us to be here, Christ? We'll make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. Why? Why did he say that? Because during this time, brothers and sisters, Israel was divided. Some people followed Moses. Some people followed Elijah. And of course, some people followed Christ. You see this? So he's saying, listen, we can all be together. Okay. Let us be unified. No more of this division. Pharisees, Sadducees, Lacedemonians, Zealots. No more of this. Essenes. No more of this. Let's set up three tabernacles for all three of you. Continue, brother. 
Mark 9, verse 6. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. So there it was again. If you study Peter closely, he was very impulsive, brothers and sisters. He would just say the first thing that came to his head. <laughs> now, this is right after Christ is saying, I will build my church. <laughs> now, Peter, is, he's just speaking. See, and at this time, you should be quiet. When you're seeing something like this go on, when the Messiah is in the room, it's time to be quiet. But Peter, very impulsive. So there's a lot of things, if you study Peter closely, how the Most High broke him down every step of the way because there was something in Peter that would, would operate as an obstacle to finishing this work. Brothers and sisters, he was very impulsive. Remember, he cut off the brother's ear. Remember that? When they came to accost or to apprehend Christ, he just pulled out a sword and cut his ear off. Remember, when Christ was walking on water, what did he say? Well, let me walk on water. <laughs> Peter was very impulsive, brothers and sisters. And here we see it again. Read 7, brother, please. Mark 9 and 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. What was there, brother? There was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. The text not only supports his identity as the son of God, but identifies him as the messenger and mouthpiece of the most high. Read that one more time, brother. Verse seven. What did this cloud say? Mark nine and seven. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. This is my son. You listen to him. Okay, over Moses, over Elijah, over Isaiah, over Ezekiel. This is my son. So here comes the direction. Don't you ever try to put Elijah and Moses on the same standing, in the, on the same rank with Christ. See that? So here it was, the presence of the Most High that we will find out. This is the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is making it clear. This one is my son. This is who you listen to. Okay. Let's prove that this is the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Luke, brother. We're gonna go to. Uh, we're gonna. We're gonna. Let's go to Luke. The first chapter, the thirtieth verse. We're gonna have brother Christopher read thirty through thirty-five. Listen to the close. Listen to this closely, because remember the t the scripture before said, and I'll read it. It says, "And there was a cloud that overshadowed them." And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Remember that word overshadowed, brothers and sisters. Luke 1 verse 30. And the angel said unto her, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Now this was the mother of the Messiah, the angel coming to Mary saying, listen, you found favor with the Most High. Verse 31. And behold. Thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Christ. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. So during this time, her and Joseph had not dealt. So this is the proof, brothers and sisters, that Luke actually came before Matthew. 
Because at this time, she didn't even know a man. In Matthew, she was already pregnant. Brothers and sisters. So really, chronologically, Luke should come before Matthew. They, they purposely did that, though. They, the way they chronologized this, brothers and sisters, was on, perfect, on purpose. Because they wanted to teach a virgin birth. And they could only do that if you believe Luke came afterwards. So don't, don't, when you're looking at the Bible, brothers and sisters, you can't believe, you know, unless you've done research, that the books are in chronological order. Because that would be a miscalculation, brothers and sisters. That would be devastating to your theology. Read that one more time, brother, please. Luke 1, verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. End of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Continue. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Who shall come upon thee? The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The Holy Spirit. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. That's that word again. Overshadow. So the operative word in this pa- in these passages is overshadow. It's the same exact vernacular. It's the same exact verbiage from the transfiguration. Remember, a cloud overshadowed them and said, this is my son, hear him. Showing you that that cloud that we've read, th- read about is representation of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Most High's presence is the Holy Spirit. The Most High never comes off the throne, ever. King don't come off the throne. And when you look at wisdom, wisdom is always personified as a feminine spirit. So she represents. It's just like if you're married or in a relationship. The woman, she represents the man. That's what we're seeing here. Read 35 one more time, brother, please. Luke 1 and 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So once again, the author is painting the picture of a covering cloud. And we've identified that covering cloud, that cloud as the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, which is a feminine spirit. Go read, (laughs) you know, Proverbs, wisdom, 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 feminine, she, her, all throughout the text, brothers and sisters. Now, they tried to confuse you in John and say, make it seem like Christ said he, when really that word he, if you pull it up in the Greek, in the concordance, that word doesn't say he at all. The word that was there was a kinos, which means that one. They just decided to translate it as he, but it really meant it. Or thee. They, it didn't denote femininity or masculinity. Why did they put that there? Because if you knew that the Holy Spirit was a feminine spirit, then there's no way they could be teaching that the Holy Ghost got Mary pregnant. You see this? This is what they teach. This is the garbage that they teach in church. That the Holy Spirit, you know, came and overshadowed her and got her pregnant. <laughs> nah. Nah. The Holy Spirit didn't get <laughs> Mary pregnant, okay? The Holy Spirit is a feminine spirit. Overshadow means cover. I will cover you to make sure everything goes fine, Mary. We just wanted to prove to you that that covering or that overshadow does what? That's pointing to the same cloud, the same presence that we read all throughout the 
the Torah, all throughout the Tanakh, all throughout the gospel, brothers and sisters. So right away, here it is, we're learning. Because why? In Proverbs, wisdom said, if you find me, you find life. Right? You find favor. So we're, we found her. <laughs> we're dealing with her first. Let's, let's get the feminine out of the way first. Let's deal with that. So now we're showing you how to identify her throughout the Bible, especially for Hebrews. Hebrews really need this. Because why? These are your people written in the literature. Coming across the Red Sea. Coming out of the wilderness. This was you. It's good for Gentiles to get this also. So you can understand properly how to serve our God. Because that God that they're teaching in the Christian church. That is not the most high. That's like some candy cane Santa Claus God. Some flight attendant. As if he's there to wait on you. Wait upon you. He's just there to answer prayers. <laughs> See, that's, that miss, that's a misinterpretation, brothers and sisters. That would be disingenuous, and that is what they taught us. It was about what we can get from God. No. You're discombobulated. It's about what he can get from you. So we, we have to reset, brothers and sisters. We have to retrain our minds about who God is, who the Messiah is, who the, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, that breath that went into Adam when you read that. That was the Holy Spirit. She was the breath of life. Job tells you that, brothers and sisters. She was the breath that went into his nostrils that brought him to life. So they work. There's no Trinity garbage that they're teaching. We're going to break it all the way down today, brothers and sisters. We're going to Exodus, the 13th chapter, the 21st and the 22nd verse. Exodus. 13 verse 21 and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of the of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people read 21 one more time brother please verse 21 and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud. Why? To lead them the way. The primary purpose of the cloud was to lead the way for the children of Israel through the wilderness, according to the text. And if we examine it closely, if we examine this same text closely, we see that the Holy Spirit's function in the passage is guidance. We find that this this <laughs> it. We find this all throughout the scripture. Remember, Paul said, if you're led by the spirit, led by what? Led by the spirit. So here it was, the Most High was using this pillar of cloud to show you the function of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Right as we're coming out, brothers and sisters, right after we're being separated from servitude. So he was, this was a foreshadowing, brothers and sisters. He was showing us something here. This was just a shadow. The substance would be in the New Testament. The substance would be after Christ, brothers and sisters. He was teaching us something here. And if you don't get this, then all of this was for naught, brothers and sisters. Especially the children of Israel. This is for Gentiles also. Because you ought to learn the God of all gods. This isn't just Israel's God. This is the God of all gods, but predominantly, whether a Gentile would like to receive it or not, 
Israel, this is a requirement. This is not optional for you. It's optional for them, not you. Read that one more time, brother, please. Exodus 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. Now, brothers and sisters, here we learn that the Holy Spirit, which is represented by what? The cloud, right? The Holy Spirit represents the presence of the Most High. In this text, it tells you while we were in the wilderness, that pillar of cloud was to lead the way. So that teaches us that the Holy Spirit's function in the passage is guidance. Let us prove that. Let's go to Christ now. Let's go to Luke, brother, four. Let's prove to you that the Holy Spirit is supposed to lead us. Luke 4, verse 1. And Christ being full of the Holy Ghost. Being full of what? Being full of the Holy Ghost. Returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Was led by what, brother? Was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, brothers and sisters, here it was Christ being led in the wilderness by the Spirit. What were we led in the wilderness by? <laughs> Do you see? We were being led in the wilderness, brothers and sisters. Once we crossed the water, right? Once we crossed the water, we were being led. Luke 3 is right after Christ does what? This is right after Christ comes out of the water. Right after he's being baptized. So there's a parallel here. Christ is operating. He's acting out what transpired in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters. Continue, brother. Luke 4 and 2. Actually, start at 1 one more time, please. Verse 1. And Christ, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. Now, brothers and sisters, right there. 40 days tempted by the devil. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. You see this? This was not coincidence. The temptation of the Messiah in the wilderness was a reenactment of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Read to one more time, brother, please. Verse 2, being 40 days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now remember this, brothers and sisters. We were complaining, right? <laughs> Weren't we complaining? The Most High had to give us manna. Remember that? Then we didn't want the manna anymore. We wanted quail. Continue, brother. Verse 3. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Christ answered him, saying, It is written, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, look at this. Now, here it is. He's using the bread. One of the major stories was the manna in the Old Testament. In fact, that's the first time you read about the Sabbath. I believe that's Exodus, the 16th chapter. That's the first time we even heard about the Sabbath, right? In regards to, you know, a, a rule for us, because he said, you gather your manna for six days. On the seventh day, it shall be the Sabbath, right? So I'll give you twice as much on the day before. See, so this was a reenactment here, brothers and sisters. But why did we go here? We went here to show you that Christ was led in the wilderness by the Spirit. Further proof that the Holy Spirit is in representation of the cloud. 
that was to lead us by day. Remember, this is eternal life, that you know the Messiah, that you know the Most High, that you know the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Nehemiah 12, brother. Excuse me, Nehemiah 9 and 12. Nehemiah 9 verse 12. Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar. Read that again, brother, please. Verse 12. Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar. And? And in the night by a pillar of fire. To give them light in the way wherein they should go. Notice that the pillar became a fire at night. So that it would... Read that again, brother, please. Nehemiah 9 and 12. Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar. And in the night by a pillar of fire. See? So the pillar now becomes a fire at night. Why? To give them light in the way wherein they should go. So the primary purpose of the fire was to illuminate our paths and enable us to proceed marching at night. So we're going to deal with both of these, brothers and sisters. We're going to deal with them both. We first identify the Holy Spirit with the cloud. Now we have to deal with this fire. What does this fire represent? What did the, we learn with the Holy Spirit, excuse me, what the cloud represented? What was it trying to teach us? Now let's deal with the pillar of fire. It tells you that the fire was to give us light in the way in where we should go. Let's go to Psalms 119, brother. Let's go to Psalms 119. That will be the precept. Psalms 119 and 105, brother. What's that say? Psalms. 119 verse 105 thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path what was the pillar or rather who was the pillar verse 105 thy word is a lamp unto my feet thy what brother thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path the pillar of fire illuminating the way for Israel was a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah how do we know what was the lamp unto my feet verse 105 thy word is a lamp unto my feet the word was a lamp unto my feet so the text suggests that Christ was the true pillar of fire how do we know that, that when it says thy word was a lamp unto my feet how do we know that's Christ because we can't just make stuff up without proving it. How do we know that thy word is Christ? Let's go to Revelations, brother. Let's go to Revelation. Revelation 19 and 12. We're going to have Brother Christopher read 12 and 13. How do we know that thy word is the Messiah? Revelation 19 verse 12. His eyes were as flame of fire. Brothers, brothers and sisters, closely examine the illustration provided by the author. Verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. What was his name, brother? His name is called the Word of God. The name for Christ is proclaimed in the writings of John. See, it said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Revelation is 19 and 13. Read that one more time, brother, please. 
Revelation 19, verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. So according to the manuscript, the pillar of fire was a physical representation to the prophesied Messiah. Here we learn that the pillar of fire was a foreshadowing, a, a prognostication without words. The Most High was teaching us something. See? Led by the cloud, which represents the Holy Spirit. At nighttime, it became a pillar of fire, which represented Christ. To be able to see in the dark. And his name is called the Word of God. Matter of fact, let's go to John. Let's go to John 1, brother, to further prove that. John, the first chapter, the first through the fifth verse. What's that say, brother? John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, here it is. Examine how John begins to describe who the Word is. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, look at this, because in verse 1, he uses location and person. He said, in the beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look at that, location and person. He said the Word was with God, the Word was God. You see that, brothers and sisters? Continue. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The author tells us that Christ was the active agent in creation, brothers and sisters. So these passages plainly show that Christ, the word of God, is the source of all creation. See? Continue, brother. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So according to John, Christ, the word, is the source and essence of life itself. Brothers and sisters, what you'll learn is the goal of John's prologue is to give an optic lens to consider Christ, the Word. You see this, brothers and sisters? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Who is this referring to? It's referring to Christ. See? Through all, Christ created everything. You see this, brothers and sisters? So, in the flesh, he was son of Mary and Joseph. Through the spirit, he was the first begotten of the father from the beginning. See, that's what makes Christ special. Not because he came through a virgin birth, because that, that's not true. Not how, not how Christians are teaching it. That's not what makes him special. What makes him special is he was the first spirit created. And from him, he created all things. You see this, brothers and sisters? So the flesh... Remember, in the Bible, it continuously tells you that he's the son of David. Why? Because Joseph was the son of David. David was Joseph's or and Christ's great, great, great granddaddy. How can he be the son of David if he didn't have a physical father? Doesn't make any sense. There's many holes in that doctrine, brothers and sisters. When you start to pull that strand, the whole thing unravels. Christ is the word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Christ was represented by that pillar of fire, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Isaiah 60. Let's go to the Old Testament. You want to go to Isaiah, the 60th chapter, the first and the second verse, brother. 
Isaiah 60 verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. The subject of darkness is an enduring principle of the Bible, which is always used to illustrate what? Sin and ignorance, brothers and sisters. Now remember, remember what John said. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended night. Not. It's referring to Christ. Now, the precept for that is Isaiah 60 and 1. Can you read that again, brother, please? Isaiah 60, verse 1. Closely examine the vernacular utilized in this particular text. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Brothers and sisters, do you see that? Read the first part, brother, because according to the text, subsequent to the arrival of light, there's a requirement for a response. Read the first verse, brother. Verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. Arise, then shine, for thy light is come. Do you see that? So once you have waken up, brothers and sisters, you now have a response to shine. Okay? Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. So Isaiah's prognostication is that through the Messiah, the Most High will bring light unto the world. Arise, once I wake you up, shine, your light has come. What light? John said Christ was the light. <laughs> See? Let us prove that. Let us prove to you that Christ was that light. Because you don't have to believe us. You don't owe us that. Brothers and sisters, what you do owe, who you do owe is the most high. You owe the Bible. So only believe what we can prove. You may like us and all that, brothers and sisters. But if we, if we don't prove something... You are obligated not to believe it until it comes out of the literature. So we're going to go there. Let's go to John 12 and 46 because we said Christ was the light. John 12 verse 46. I am come a light into the world. Read that again, brother. I am come a light into the world. That whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. In our text, Christ tells us why he has come into the world. Notice that Christ doesn't say, I have the light. Rather, he says, I have come as the light. <laughs> Read that again, brother, please. John 12 and 46. I am, <clears throat> I am come a light into the world. That whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Light in darkness. Are Christ's metaphors for knowledge and ignorance, brothers and sisters. So the text implies that he had a function as light before he entered the world. Why? Read it one more time, brother. Verse 46. 
I am come a light into the world. He said, I came a light. He didn't say I became a light. He said, I came a light. So when I came to the world, I was already the light. <laughs> Why did he come, brother? That whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. See? Now remember, the pillar of fire was to lead us at night. That lamp, brothers and sisters, that's Christ. It represents Christ. So what is, he, what is the Most High trying to convey? He's saying, look at the Old Testament. I'm trying to teach you in the Old Testament through the cloud. If you want to learn the Most High through the Holy Spirit, go read about the cloud. You want to learn about Christ? See, he was prophesying Christ before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was prophesying Christ in Exodus, brothers and sisters. This is how magnificent the Most High is. The narrative that you can have all these different authors, but the narrative stays consistent, brothers and sisters. He said, I am come a light into the world. So when I came to the world, I was the light. That means I was the light before I came into the world. Do you see? Let's go to Malachi 4 and 2, brother. I need you to go there, brothers and sisters. Go to Malachi 4 and 2. I know a lot of people, they they just listen to the podcast without going to the scriptures. But this particular scripture, brothers and sisters, I need you to go to. Pull it up. Malachi 4, verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. I need you to closely examine the expression used to communicate Christ's function in his pre-existence. Brothers and sisters, the Messiah's second coming will be a glorious sunrising to all that fear the Most High's name. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 2. But until you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise. Spell that word, son. S-U-N. S-O-N? S-U-N. No, S-O-N. S-U-N. Son of Righteousness. Arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stars. So look at this. It says, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N will arise with healing in his wings. Who came and did the healing? Brothers and sisters. So the Messiah's second coming will be a glorious sunrising to all who fear the Most High's name. Contemplate the manner in which he said to arise with healing in his wings. The wings of the sun are the rays or sunbeams it sends out. So now it's, 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 it's teaching you about Christ through the physical sun now. It's spelled S-U-N. The son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Link that with Isaiah 60 and 1. Arise, shine, thy light has come. <laughs> you see, brothers and sisters, so according to the author, the sun in the sky and the son of God have identical functions, and that is illumination. We're not saying that Christ is the sun in the sky. We're telling you that the Most High is trying to teach you about the Messiah through the sun in the sky. He's saying the same purpose that the sun in the sky has, that's the purpose of my son. See, nothing can grow, right? 
Imagine if the earth was just dark, brothers and sisters. Nothing would grow. You need sunlight. People would die. People would be sick. It, 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 it sheds light on all the dark areas. So the function of the sun in the sky communicates the Messiah's purpose to the earth. So the Most High is telling us everything around. I'm trying to teach you about me. Right? I'm trying to teach you about not only me, but the Messiah. Not only the Messiah in myself, but the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look at creation. Creation is all pointing to something here. It says, Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. Healing in His wings. And His wings is referring to the sun rays, the sunbeams. Those sunbeams have healing in them. Brothers and sisters, how do you think plants grow? It helps us out. It helps us stay healthy. Brothers and sisters, when you don't get sun, what happens? Depression, all types of stuff, brothers and sisters. Let's go to Matthew 17, brother, because let's still stick with that sun of righteousness, where it's using the word sun, S-U-N, like the sun in the sky, to represent the Messiah. Let's go to Matthew 17 and 1. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Christ taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. The three disciples are granted a perception of who and what Christ really is in conjunction with his spiritual function. This is the transfiguration again, brothers and sisters. Continue. Verse 2. And was transfigured before them. What happened? And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. Spell that word, son. S-U-N. And his raiment was white as the light. Here again, we see the extraordinarily rich metaphor of the visage of the Messiah being parallel to the sun. Brothers and sisters, read that one more time from the top, please, brother. Matthew 17 and 1. And after six days, Christ taketh Peter. James and John his brother and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. And what happened? And his face did shine as the sun. It shined as what, brother? His face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. Employed in this description of the transfigured Savior is a foreshadowing of his true form, his distinctive character. You see, it said his face shined like the sun. That's not a coincidence, brothers and sisters. This is not the first time somebody's face shined. And it never said that about Moses when his face was shining. So here it is. It's trying to, he's trying to communicate something. But if you carelessly skim through the literature, you will miss this, brothers and sisters. Christ said what? He said, this is eternal life. That you get acquainted with not only the Most High, but with the Messiah. The only thing we know about the Messiah is that he died on the cross. <laughs> That's the only thing they teach us in Christianity. We don't want to know anything else. We don't, you know, we don't care about anything else. We just go straight to the end. Christ never taught the cross, brothers and sisters. That was never part of his message. Christianity have wrapped up Christ into just the cross. You don't know anything about him. Don't know who his parents were. You know, you know, 
they don't know anything about him. The only thing they know is cross. And the Bible is telling you that look at the sun in the sky. That function, the, the sun's function is the same function of my sun. What the sun does for the earth is what my sun does for the earth. It's not saying he is the S-U-N. It's saying learn from the S-U-N. What its function is. Because it teaches you about the Messiah. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 2. Because there's something critical there. Matthew 17 and 2. And was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was white as the light. Now, this is critical because it said his face did shine like the sun. Why is that important? Let's go to Ecclesiasticus, brother. Let's go to the Apocrypha, the 19th chapter, the 29th verse. Follow us, please, brothers and sisters. Ecclesiasticus 19 and 29. It said his face shined like the sun. Ecclesiasticus 19 verse 29. A man may be known by his look. Read that again. A man may be known by his look, and one that hath understanding by his countenance, when thou meetest him. A man may be known by his look. And the author of uh, Matthew made it a point to tell you what his face looked like, brothers and sisters. Made it a point to give a metaphor of his face. So according to the previous text, his description is very revealing. A man may be known by his look. Now also, you can apply that to us. Okay? What you look like, brothers and sisters. How you dress, how you operate, how you carry yourself. According to the Bible, you know what a man or a woman. You can tell when a sister is dealing with the spirit of a harlot. You can look right at a sister and know that. Same thing for a brother. Okay? So take that and apply that, you men and women of God. You know a man by his look. If you're going to be a man or woman of God, look like a man or woman of God, brothers and sisters. Let's go back to John 8 and 12, brother, because now we're, we're seeing something here. We started with that pillar of fire by night. We found out that that represented Christ, and now he moved from that pillar of fire to the S-U-N, teaching us about Christ. Further proof. John 8, verse 12. Then spake Christ again unto them, saying, What did he say? I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In declaring himself to be the light of the world, he was claiming to be the exclusive source of spiritual light. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 12. Then spake Christ again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. So he's telling you exclusively, I am the source of spiritual light. And guess what? We know that even according to contemporary knowledge, the sun is in itself a source of light. Continue, brother. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The text teaches that if one recognizes Christ as the light of the world and follows him, he or she will always possess the light. 
Here it is, brothers and sisters. All of this, we've read these scriptures many times. But a lot of times we, we didn't catch it. Showing you that this is the living word. Many of us have read these scriptures a hundred times over. A lot of us grew up in church. And just really read it, didn't really ascertain much. This is the living word, brothers and sisters. Let's go to John 12 and 35, brother. Just a few chapters away. We're going to read 35 and 36. John 12, verse 35. Then Christ said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Brothers and sisters, notice the requirement in the light. There are two statements which identify what all hearers must do once enlightened. In, excuse me, enlightened. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 35. Then Christ said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light. Do what? Walk while ye have the light. Walk in the light. Lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. So the first requirement, once you have light, is to walk in it, which means progress. Continue. Verse 36. While ye have light, believe in the light. Do what? Believe in the light. So there it is. So walk in the light and believe in the light. There's two requirements. Can you read that again, brother? Verse 36. While ye have light, believe in the light. That ye may be the children of light. These things spake Christ and departed and did hide himself from them. You see, so both words walk and believe are plural imperatives or what you would call a command, brothers and sisters. He said you're required to walk, which means progress. You're required to believe, which means be committed, means to trust, brothers and sisters. If you don't progress and don't trust you are not in the light. I apologize. This highlights the fact that being in the presence of the light alone does not secure salvation. He said, while you have light, you need to progress and you need to believe and trust. So just to have it, that, that's not enough. Read 35 and 36 one more time because I need our brothers and sisters to note the urgency of his message. Christ is implying that there would be a time devoid of light or sun. John 12 verse 35. Then Christ said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. A little while the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. Walk while you have the light implies that it will be a time you don't. Lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Brothers and sisters, we remember walking around in the dark. You stub your toe, all to hit your head, all, all this stuff. He's saying a lot of people, especially us, our people, are walking around stumbling, falling over obstacles and don't know what's going on. Continue, brother, please. John 12 and 36. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Christ and departed and did hide himself from them. Now, examine the urgency. He kept saying, you'll have light for a little while. Walk while you have the light. Believe while you have the light. Implying what? 
that there's going to come a time when you don't have the light. Now, remember, the, the, the author have already identified the son with Christ, S-U-N, saying what? You can learn, look at, examine the function of the physical S-U-N, and you can learn the function of the S-O-N. Let us prove that, because Christ, is the way he's speaking here, is he's trying to show urgency here. What is he saying? What is he talking about here? You won't have light. Hurry up while you have the light. What is he saying? Let's go to Luke, brother, 23. Stand in the gospel, Luke 23 and 44. We'll read 44 through 46. Luke 23, verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the mist. And when Christ had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Read that from the top, brother, please. Luke 23 and 44. And it was about the sixth hour. Twelve noon. And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Three, brothers and sisters, 3 p.m., darkness covered all the land. So from 12 noon to 3 p.m., while Christ was on that cross, darkness covered the entire land. Now, examine this, brothers and sisters. Notice how it wasn't just darkness, but the sun itself was darkened. Can you read? Verse 45. And the sun was darkened. What was darkened, brother? And the sun was darkened. Spell that word sun, please. S-U-N. And the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was rent in the mist. Look at this, brothers and sisters. According to the author, there was a failure of its light. Remember, Christ kept saying, what did he say? Walk while you have the light. Believe while you have the light. He, see? So he was telling you urgency. Now, remember, the scripture have already identified him as the son of righteousness, S-U-N. And now, once he dies, there's darkness. There's three hours of darkness, brothers and sisters, where the sun is darkened. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not coincidence that they put that sun there. He could have just said darkness came all over the earth, but they specifically put the sun was darkened. And what was going on while the sun was darkened? Read 46, please, brother. Luke 23 and 46. And when Christ had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Here we notice that the darkness is connected with the suffering of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the sun being turned into darkness would be equivalent to Christ being made sin for us. Darkness represents sin. Brothers and sisters, Christ became sin for us. The, t the, the literature tells you he made him who knew no sin become sin for us. This is what Christ was saying. Walk while you have the light. You only have light for a little while. What was he telling us? We're seeing it. The fulfillment of that prophecy. Brothers and sisters, the fulfillment of that prophecy. We're going to go to Psalms 19. We're going to go to the Old Testament. Psalms, the 19th chapter, the first through the fifth verse. 
Psalms 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the clearest biblical statements that nature itself is meant to show the greatness of the Most High. Read that one more time, please, brother. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. He's saying you can learn about me from the heavens. You can learn about me from the firmament, my handiwork. Verse 2. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Brothers and sisters, the existence and structure of what we see in the heavens vividly illustrates the Most High's glory. So what we're seeing is, according to the author, the day and night sky reveal the knowledge of the creative greatness of the Most High. Read two one more time, brother. Psalms 19 and 2. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. See, look at this, brothers and sisters. He's saying, look at, look at the luminaries. Look at the sky. It's teaching you something. Continue. Verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So it's telling you, this it teaches us that creation, even devoid of speech, proclaims its power. The sun doesn't have to speak. The moon doesn't have to speak. The clouds don't have to speak. It's still teaching without, without voice. Verse 4. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. A tabernacle for the sun. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Now, brothers and sisters, the author points to the powerfulness of the testimony which the heavens deliver of God's glory. But there's something else. Can you read four and five one more time, brother? Because David here compares the radiance of the sun to the bridegroom emerging from his home on his wedding day. Psalms 19, verse 4. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. Brothers and sisters, it's speaking of the sun as a bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? We know who the bridegroom is. The bridegroom all throughout the literature is Christ. See, brothers and sisters, it's teaching you about Christ here. Now we're learning. We've learned about the Holy Spirit. We've learned about how to identify Christ. So you see this, brothers and sisters? The rising sun is here a figure, a token or shadow of Christ, the Messiah. We're seeing that, brothers and sisters. We're going to go to Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the first verse. Going to the New Testament. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, the first verse. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually Make the comers thereunto perfect. The text teaches us that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was what? 
It was a foreshadowing of something to come. Can you read that one more time, brother? Hebrews 10 and 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. It had a shadow. If it's a shadow, that means it's not real, brothers and sisters. If you see a shadow, can you touch that? No. It said it had a shadow of good things to come, not the very image. Right? Continue. Can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So the author points out that the system of animal sacrifice was incomplete as it required repeated sacrifices. So we're going to deal with that, brothers and sisters. We're going to deal with these sacrifices because it's saying that the sacrifices taught you of something to come. So brothers and sisters, as we read in Hebrews 10 and 1, that the sacrificial system, it was, it wasn't the substance, it was, it was a shadow, brothers and sisters. And we're going to show you, we're going to go to a few of the sacrifices and show you what was the sacrificial system. What were these particular sacrifices teaching us? We're at Exodus, the 13th chapter, the 12th and 13th verse. Exodus 13, verse 12. That thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix. The matrix is the womb, brothers and sisters. And every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the males shall be the Lord's. Read that one more time, brother. Exodus 12 and 13. That thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix. And every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the males shall be the Lord's. Brothers and sisters, everything which opened the womb was supposed to be given unto the Most High God. That's what it's telling you. Every firstling that cometh of a beast, which if it's a male, shall be the Most High. So the firstborn of all things belong unto the Most High. Continue, brother. Verse 13. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. So here it was, brothers and sisters. Why is he why is he saying the firstborn belongs to him? He purchased that in Egypt when he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians to free us, brothers and sisters. So the firstborn, your firstborn son, you would actually have to go redeem that, brothers and sisters. Which means you would have to go to the temple and pay the priest, essentially for having a firstborn son. You weren't paying the priest. You were paying it to the priest, but it was for unto the Most High God. You could redeem him. So your firstborn belong unto the Most High. Not just of your physical child, but of all the animals. Read 13 one more time, brother, please. Because since the donkey was unclean, it could not be presented in a sacrifice unto him. So look at what it says. Exodus 13 and 13. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. The first thing, the firstling of an ass or a donkey. And if thou wilt not redeem it. It says you can redeem it with a lamb, which means you can. So when you have a donkey, the first donkey, you can do what? You can redeem it with the lamb, which is sacrifice the lamb instead of the donkey. Because if you don't sacrifice that lamb, then what happens? And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. See? So look at that. The donkey could be saved by the substitution of a lamb in its place. 
redemption or death. So it's telling you, I, you can't sacrifice a donkey because it's unclean. So I'll let you keep the donkey if you sacrifice a lamb instead. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? Because when you gave him the firstborn male of all your animals, it was sacrificed. That's what would happen to it, brothers and sisters. He's telling you, listen, I'll let you keep the ass if you redeem it with the lamb. He's telling you, you can't sacrifice a donkey. You can sacrifice a lamb, so I'll let you keep the ass. Give me the lamb. Now, remember, the, the ass, people used it for what? For work, brothers and sisters? To carry burdens, right? To, for travel. So it's telling you, do you want to keep this ass, this mule? If you want to, redeem it with the lamb. If not, you must snap its neck. So the choice was either give up a lamb so you can keep this donkey or snap the neck of the donkey. Now remember, this was a shadow of things to come. We're going to break this down. Let's go to Job 11, brother. Job 11, the 11th chapter, the... 12th verse. What's that saying, brother? Job 11, verse 12. For vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. Closely examine the concept that the author is trying to convey here. Can you read that again, brother? Job 11 and 12. For vain man would be wise. Though man be born like a wild ass's colt. Though man what, brother? Though man be born like a wild ass's colt. According to the text, man in his natural state is identified as a stubborn donkey. A wild ass's colt is just that. It's wild. It has to be broken. To break one, you must ride him. So right away, here it is. The ass represents man. Stubborn. <laughs> See, are you now we're breaking it down, brothers and sisters. What was he trying to teach us with this donkey? It must be redeemed with the lamb or, or the neck has to be snapped. You're the donkey. According to the Bible. Let's go to John 129. Let's deal with the lamb, brother. We've identified the donkey as you and I. Stubborn. Mules. John 1 and 29 says what, brother? John 1 verse 29. The next day John seeth Christ coming unto him and said. What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Examine the proclamation that John made of a new revelation at the arrival of Christ into his presence. Can you read that again? John 1 and 29. The next day John seeth Christ coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God. Now the symbology can, be, can begin to shape our perception of the Old Testament sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, according to John, the Lamb required to die in order to redeem the donkey is Christ. The author here reveals the truth concerning the redemptive process of the donkey. We identified the donkey. The donkey is you and I. We identified the lamb. The lamb is Christ. Let's go back now. 
Let's go to Revelations 12 and 11, brother, because we identified the donkey as myself, uh, you and I, brothers and sisters. We've identified the lamb as the Messiah. Revelations 12 and 11, brother. What's that say? Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. How did they overcome? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives until the death. The lamb of God must stand in our stead. He must stand in as our substitute. If not, we must die eternally. And now we begin to understand how the Mosaic sacrificial system of the Old Testament foreshadowed Christ. A lamb in Israel's economy was always a sacrificial animal, killed as a substitute for sins, brothers and sisters. Now let's go back to that sacrifice. Let's go to Isaiah, excuse me, let's go to Exodus 34 and 20. Let's go back to what we learned about this donkey, the redemption of a donkey. Exodus 34, verse 20. What's that say, brother? Exodus 34, verse 20. But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. The firstborn of a donkey shall be redeemed with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not. If you don't want to exchange that donkey for a lamb. Then shalt thou break his neck. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem. And none shall appear before me empty. If you chose not to redeem the donkey, you must break the neck of the unredeemed donkey. You see that, brothers and sisters? The lamb foreshadowed Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for our sins as what? As a sacrificial lamb. The donkey represents you and I. The lamb represents the redemption of Christ, the lamb of God says the firstborn of a donkey I'll allow you to redeem it with a lamb it can only be redeemed with a lamb if you don't want to give up a lamb and you want to you don't want to give up a lamb in exchange for that donkey you must kill the donkey so this is a foreshadowing of you and I either we're going to be killed or we're going to be redeemed by the lamb brothers and sisters who is Christ see brothers and sisters I really need you to now reflect on what Hebrews 10 and 1 said. When it said the sacrificial system had a shadow, not the very image. So it wasn't real. It was pointing to something else. So all these sacrifices in holy days were pointing to something in the future. And I think we're starting to understand it. Let's go to Mark, brother. Let's go back to the gospel. Mark, the 11th chapter. The first through the ninth verse. Oh. Mark 11 verse 1. And when they came in, <clears throat> and when they came nigh to Jerusalem until Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples. How many, brother? Two of his disciples. Okay. And saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a coat tied 
whereon never man sat, loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. So, brothers and sisters, he's telling you that he's telling his disciples, Go find a colt, go find a donkey and a colt, untie him and bring him to me. And if somebody asks you why you're doing this, you tell them, Listen, the most, the Lord, the owner, had need of him, and they'll let you go. What happens after that, brother? Verse 4. Mark 11 and 4. And they went their way and found the coat tied by the door without in a place where two ways met. And they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the coat? And they said unto them, Even as Christ had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to Christ and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. So here it is. Here we see, brothers and sisters, here we see that they've now they've now gotten these, you know, gotten this cult, right? And they're bringing it to Christ. Read 6 one more time, brother, please. Mark 11 and 6. And they said unto them, Even as Christ had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the cult to Christ, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees, and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So here we see that Christ is depicted as riding into Jerusalem on the back of the coat of a donkey. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Christ's purpose in riding into Jerusalem was to make a public claim to be their Messiah or our Messiah. Read verse 4, brother, one more time. Mark 11 and 4. And they went their way and found the coat tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. Now, we've already established that the colt, the donkey, we already understand who that is. That represents you and I, brothers and sisters. Now, this is all symbolic because this is a picture of a person being bound in their sins before salvation. It said that the colt was tied by a door where two ways met. Let us show you that this is talking about us being bound by our sins. Let's go to Proverbs 5 and 22, brother. See, this is why you have to Use the whole Bible. You can't try to separate the Old Testament from the New. You'll never, you'll never get the proper understanding. Proverbs five and twenty-two. What's that? What's that tied cult mean, brother? His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. He shall what, brother? He shall be holden with the cords of his sins. According to the literature, the Most High allows the consequences of our own decisions to impact us. It says iniquity. Iniquity because it's visibly undetectable. Look at that, brothers and sisters. It's, it's, visibly, it's visibly undetectable. So it has a apprehensive nature because you don't know what's there. In, iniquity is invisible sin. Can you read that again, brother? Proverbs 5, verse 22. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself. 
and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. See, so the Most High designed the universe in such a way that there would be natural consequences for sin. This magnifies the unintended consequences of sin. You shall be tied with the cords of your sins. Let's go back to Mark 11 and 4, brother. So I think we're getting some understanding here. Mark 11, verse 4. What's that say, brother? And they went their way and found the coat tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they lose him. And Brothers and sisters, it's no coincidence that the author distinguishes two paths that could potentially be taken. Read that one more time, brother. Verse 4. And they went their way. And found the coat tied by the door without in a place where two ways met. In a place what? In a place where two ways met. See, this coat is a picture of ourselves. This scene takes place at a crossroads, a place where two roads met. You see this? All of this being put in these, in these texts is not coincidence, brothers and sisters. Nothing in this Bible is just because every word that's here. Every detail that's here represents something. It's symbolic, brothers and sisters. See, all of this actually happened. We're not saying this is a metaphor, brothers and sisters. All this actually happened, but it was symbolic. The way the Most High set it up was to symbolize something. This coat we found is you and I. It's telling you this coat is tied by a door. Where it can go left or right, in or out. So this code is a picture of ourselves. At a crossroads, a place where two roads meet. It said it was tied by what? By the door. Let's go there. Let's go to John 10 and 9. Let's go to that door. Let's see. John the 10th chapter, the 9th verse. What's that say, brother? John 10 verse 9. I am the door. Read that again, please. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Here Christ points out for us the exclusive nature of salvation by saying he is the door. He is the sole means to enter the safety of the heavenly sheepfold. Can you read that again, Brother Christopher? John 10 and 9. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And find what, brother? And find pasture. A pasture is the place where sheep eat food, brothers and sisters. So we are not only promised liberty, but spiritual nourishment. He found a colt tied to a door, tied near a door where two ways meet, in and out. We're finding out that the code is us, restricted by our sins. Christ is the door. Let's go back to Mark, brother. This is how you study, brothers and sisters. It's a lot of moving around in the Bible, but this is how you this is how you're able to ascertain. This is how you're able to actually comprehend. Many people are reading the Bible like a novel, and it bores them, and they, they learn nothing. You can't read it like a novel, brothers and sisters. The Bible tells you. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. You cannot learn reading it 
as a novel. You can read it as a novel, but you're not going to get anything from it. Can you read verse 7, brother? Mark 11 and 7. And they brought the colt to Christ and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. It is no coincidence that the author makes a note that the disciples placed their garments upon the donkey. Brothers and sisters. A distinction of change in apparel always had spiritual significance in Hebraic literature. Read that one more time, please, brother. Mark 11 and 7. And they brought the coat to Christ. And what happened? And Christ, and cast their garments on him. They did what? And cast their garments on him. Look at this, brothers and sisters. There's a running theme or narrative within the Bible that spiritual uncleanliness can be found in your physical garment. So now they put different. They put clothes on this coat that represents stubborn man, right? Let us show you that th this has significance. The fact that they're putting apparel, new apparel, on this coat has significance. Let's go to Isaiah 64, brother. Because this whole thing that Christ was dealing with. Now, this is what they called Palm Sunday, brothers and sisters. Or Good Friday, excuse me. This is what they, Christ, you know, uh, <laughs> coming in, you know, they calling Hosanna and waving out the sheaves. And yeah, this was Palm Sunday, brothers and sisters. Isaiah 64 and 6. Now, in the Christian church, they, we know about that. We didn't know the significance of it, but we all knew that. Remember, they would give you the palm leaf and all that, brothers and sisters. Now we're giving you the understanding of what all that represented. What's that saying, brother? Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Read that again, brother. brother. Verse 6. But we are... All as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Here we see the narrative again showing a spiritual condition being associated with physical garments. Can you read that again, brother, please? Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Now look at this. Clothing is a picture of one standing before God in the Old Testament. It says our righteousness is as filthy rags. Read verse 7, brother, please. Verse 7. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that steereth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us. Why? Because of our iniquities. Now look at this. You see this, brothers and sisters? So why did they change the garments on this cult? We know the cult represents us. Why did they change the garments? Read 6 one more time, brother. Isaiah 64 and 6. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. As filthy rags. So clothing is always a picture of one standing spiritually before the Most High God in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve taught us this. The apparel they wore gave insight to the consciousness of their minds. Remember, 
they did what? They put, you know, fig leaves on them. The Most High's like, nah, <laughs> nah, you're going to put this on. You see, brothers and sisters, so in Hebrew hermeneutics, apparel, clothing, or change of garments was always significant. The garment speaks or describes a lot about who we are in the spiritual realm, always in the Bible, brothers and sisters. Your apparel represented your character. It symbolized your character in the Bible. Examine that, brothers and sisters. Go study that. Always, when it talked about apparel, when it talked about change of apparel, it's always a symbolization or a symbolism of what? Of your character. See? So this is what the change of clothes represented. The coat, who is you and I. Our righteousness are as filthy rags. Let's go to Isaiah, brother, 61. Same, we're going to stay in the same book. We're going to go to Isaiah 61 and 10. We're almost done here. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath done what? He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. The purpose of the clothing metaphor in scripture is given to illustrate a spiritual concept. The idea is that our spiritual condition is distinguished by your apparel. Can you read that again? Isaiah 61 and 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Now remember that Isaiah 64 said all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now he's saying for he hath clothed me with what brother? For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. As who? As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. So what is he saying? He's saying, I can tell where you're going based on how you're dressed. A bridegroom, you know he's going to a wedding. <laughs> he has a tuxedo on. You see a sister in all white with a veil on, right? And her ornaments. So he's saying, I know exactly where you're going based on how you're dressed. So closely examine the correlation between the function and the apparel. <laughs> a bridegroom, he's wearing specific things. A bride is wearing specific things. So it's it's symbolic, brothers and sisters. When it says they cast, you know, they put new garments on that coat. See? So the coat we learned is you and I. It had to be broken. How did, how do you know it was broken? Because Christ rode on it. You can't ride on it until it's broken. So that was us being broken, allowing us to allowing us to be rid by Christ, brothers and sisters. Changing our garments, our filthy garments, putting on the garments of salvation, the robes of righteousness. All of this represented something. Let's go to Isaiah 33 and 6, and we're going to close out here. Isaiah, the 33rd chapter, the 6th verse. Isaiah 33, verse 6. 
And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times, and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Read that one more time, please, brother. Isaiah 33 and 6. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. Wisdom and knowledge shall stabilize you, brothers and sisters. Knowledge means to know. Wisdom means how to apply what you know. I can have the knowledge of how a screwdriver, you know, what a screwdriver is. But you cannot use a screwdriver like a hammer. So knowledge means I know what the screwdriver is. Wisdom is how do I use the screwdriver? He's saying that's what's going to be able to stabilize you in the last days. Your salvation is there. Fear of the Lord is a treasure. So we went into a lot of information today, brothers and sisters. Why? To help stabilize you. To help you understand the significance of the record of the Bible. To get to know the Most High. To get to know the Messiah. To get to know the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Christ told us that eternal life was what? To be acquainted with the Most High and Himself, Christ, the Messiah. Now this was... We went into a lot of scriptures today, brothers and sisters, and there's even more. The entire Bible teaches you of the Most High. We have to seek it out. And I would encourage all of our brethren, all of you, study more about Christ. Many times we come into being Israelites and the only thing we're looking for is laws. And that's fine. That's good. I follow the law. Our church follows the law. But the law is not going to get you into the kingdom. If you don't have Christ, go study Christ again, brothers and sisters. Today's lesson, this is eternal life, acquaintance with the Most High God. We want to say, Kwam Yasharala, Kwam Yasharala, sin no more. Sin no more.